Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm just huddled now in the lee of one of the most famous stones on planet Earth, one of the giant sarsen stones in Stonehenge in Wiltshire in the UK. There's a little breeze blowing from the west. The rain showers are coming in and I'm standing on the wide open plain here in Stonehenge, right up close to the stones, just before it reopens to the public in a couple of weeks time. We're here, we've seized the opportunity to make a documentary for History Hit TV. I'm looking out now, the tallest stone pointing up into the sky to the west. Absolute beauty, that one. Two meters underground, about four or five meters sticking up out of the ground. On the inner layer, the inner ring, then you get the outer ring of Sarsons. Now, the interesting thing about this outer ring is we actually don't know where they're from. And there's new research now. We've always assumed they're from quite close by in Wiltshire. But there's new research which is going to study all of these stones. It may emerge that they're from as far afield as some of the other blue stones, which actually come, as everybody knows, from South Wales. Can you believe it? They come from South Wales. How on earth? No one knows how they got here. It's incredible. Love this site. Two and a half thousand BC. They start building this Stonehenge. It's an absolutely joyful thing. So if you want the live podcast in taking place from Stonehenge, from here, the Zoom podcast night that History Hit subscribers can listen in on, we're going to be talking to the professor behind the new discoveries, the giant calendar written large in the landscape here at Stonehenge. They've been reading about that recently in the press. That will be the, the Zoom call. So subscribers to History Hit, as always, can sit in on the weekly live Zoom calls. The program will be going out on History Hit TV soon. You can go to History Hit TV, become a subscriber. It's like the Netflix for history. You get hundreds of hours of documentaries, awesome access to places like Stonehenge when it's not even open to anybody else apart from Team History Hit. And you can also access all the back episodes of this podcast. If you go to History Hit TV, use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and you get your first month is one pound, euro, or dollar. I mean, that's a pretty good rate, to be honest. This podcast is a repeat. It's a rerun of a podcast that first went out years ago. It's with one of the great friends of History at Podcast, Roger Morehouse. The story of the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff, which is sort of unknown to the majority of non-Germans in the world. It was once a cruise ship for Hitler's Reich, but in January 1945 it was evacuating vast numbers of uh, civilians, refugees and military personnel from eastern Germany, bringing them back away from the Soviet army to the west when it was sunk by a Soviet torpedo. 10,000 passengers died, froze to death in the icy waters of the January Baltic. It is the worst maritime disaster in history, bar none, and yet it's not known about, it's not talked about. It is this year, the 75th anniversary of the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff, so we thought we'd revisit this old podcast, I think recorded when I was the ill-fated adventure looking for the Nazi gold train that was allegedly hidden in a tunnel in Poland. It was not there, that was a fiasco, but I recorded this podcast with Roger Morehouse from Poland instead. So, from Stonehenge, via Poland, to January 1945, here's Roger Morehouse and the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff. Enjoy. Roger, did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, just about, Dan. Yeah, that was fine. Because <laughs> I know you've been going at me about my pronunciation recently <laughs> foreign words. Yes, forgive my, uh, my pedantry. No, it's fair enough. That's what you're there for, buddy. Now, tell me, this is really one of the most extraordinary stories. Let's talk about the ship itself, and then we'll get yeah. on to the tragic circumstances of its loss at sea. Was this a particularly enormous ship, was it, or were there just lots of people? Um, not especially enormous. It was, uh, I think, 26,000 tonnes off the top of my head, which is about 
roughly half the displacement of the Titanic. So it's not massive. It's a, it's a good-sized cruise ship. It had space for a complement of about 500 crew and 1,500 passengers. So it was a good size. would be a good size even by modern standards. And what does it do? So it's launched in 1937. Uh, yep. It then spends the next few years doing what? What's peculiar about its early history? We, you know, those that know anything about the Gustloff will know broadly the circumstances of its sinking, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what I wanted to do with this ebook is to try and look at the sort of the history of the book, history of the of the vessel in the round. So, you know, that it's not just its final voyage and its final sort of two days of its life that are interesting. I think it actually tells you a much wider story. Um, it was actually uh, the first purpose-built cruise ship. Um, for the Nazi leisure time organization, which was known as, as Kraft durch Freude, Strength Through Joy. They had already, by the time that the Gustloff is laid down in '36, they had already requisitioned existing ships to serve as their cruise liners, but this was the first one that they'd actually laid down and built themselves as you know, purpose-built for their, for their uh, organization. So that, that in itself, I think, makes it quite remarkable. So what's, um, what's the difference between a Nazi cruise liner and a normal cruise liner? Are there any sort of features that they particularly wanted to install? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, it sounds a, sl- a slightly sort of um, almost a silly question, Dan, but it's not, actually, because there are some features of the Gustloff which are quite peculiar. Um, this organization, Kraft durch Freude, is actually rather important in the history of Nazism. It's one of those aspects of the story of the Third Reich that I think we conventionally overlook, uh, particularly in the West. Our view of how the Third Reich functioned tends to focus on the oppression, if you like, the um, you know the Gestapo, the SS, uh, the Holocaust, all of that narrative of of uh, peoples under the heel of the Nazi jackboot. Um, there is, of course, another side to that story. Um, you know, any system like that needs to have a carrot as well as a stick. Uh, and in a sense, the KDF was part of that carrot. It was part of the appeal that the Nazis sold to their own people and said, look at all the benefits that you get from being part of this, this Nazi or the, this, the, the German national community, as they called it. Um, so the KDF was set up right at the beginning of the Third Reich, and it's basically providing free time activity. It was a key part of the sort of totalitarian ambition, the idea that the regime should have its fingers in absolutely every aspect of your life, from your workplace through to your free time, to, through to your political activity, whatever it would be, sporting activity. Everything in free time was run by the KDF and was suitably sort of Nazified. So it was a very important part of the, of the broader story of the Third Reich, actually, and it's one that we traditionally forget. So it's running, you know, the KDF is running you know, after work, weekend rambles. It starts running holidays for the German people as well. And really, it's one of the sort of progenitors of the, of the package holiday. And it's already going on in the 1930s elsewhere, but it's something that the KDF picks up and it runs with. Um, and of course, they, these things are very, very much politicized. You'd make sure that all the sort of, you know, political content was there. Um, you know, you'd have speeches and and introductory talks and lectures and so on, as well as as well as the free time activities. So it's quite political as well as being a free time organisation. So to come back to your question about what what uh, was specific about the Wilhelm Gustloff, I said it was it was um, purpose built by the Nazis for this purpose, and um, it had, for example, it was a classless ship. That's one of the peculiarities. It had no dif- no differentiation between classes. Everybody paid the same. Everybody had a cabin that had a you know a window and an outside view. 
Um, so it's that it sort of ties in with the the small s socialist aspect of the national socialist idea. You know, everyone was equal as long as you're in a part of the German nation and a part of the German folk. Uh, everyone's equal within that. So that was one aspect. Um, it also had, for example, you know, you know the the ship's tannoy was was you know was rigged up to be playing um, patriotic marches, Hitler's speeches, whatever it would be. So that enables you to run that political content. Uh, and of course, its cruises had um, had uh, Gestapo men on them, so that they could uh, inform, if necessary, on anyone who was uh, uh, not on message and not being sufficiently Nazi. So it does have a few features that are actually rather specific uh, to a Nazi cruise ship. Right, and in 1939, war breaks out. Now, unfortunately for Germany's ultimate chances of victory. Britannia rules the waves. So what happens yeah. to big Nazi cruise ships like this one? Do they, do they just return to port and sit there and rot? Well, a little bit. They sort of, it sort of served its purpose in that sense because there are no Nazi cruises going on um, you know, by 1939, by the, by the autumn of 1939. I mean, it had travelled quite widely by this point. It's been up into the, into the Baltic. It's been up the Norwegian fjords. It used to do runs into the, into the Mediterranean and to, uh, to the Azores and things like that. So it's quite well travelled. By this time, it would have would have carried the Guslov on its own, would have carried about 75,000 people on its cruises. So it was, it had quite a sort of a rich career as a cruise ship. Come the autumn of 1939, obviously it gets redesignated initially as a hospital ship. And it's moored off Gdynia, off uh, what's, what becomes known as, as Gortenhafen to the Germans, what's now northern Poland, northern Polish coast, uh, and is used there as a hospital ship to... to um, uh, take care of the wounded from the Polish campaign. It then plays the same role in the Norwegian campaign in 1940. So it's sort of ferried around serving that role in the opening phases of World War II. It's a bit of an ignominious sort of come down from this ship, which was, you know, very much the most famous peacetime vessel, you know, aside from ships like the, like the Bismarck, the bat battleships and so on. It's very much the most famous peacetime vessel of, of Nazi Germany. So it's very much a come down uh, to be serving as a hospital ship in that way. Its next uh, sort of iteration is, is uh, you know, later on in the war, it gets again moored in Gdynia, in Gortenhafen, and, and, is, and is left there as a, effectively as a barracks ship. But that, I think most people that have studied this period tend to view that, again, as, as sort of the ultimate ignominy, that it's left in a provincial sort of Baltic backwater uh, and is largely forgotten. I think that's actually a rather more crucial part of the story is that is that we overlook the importance of the Eastern Baltic to the German U-boat campaign. And it was actually serving a very important purpose there as a barrack ship for one of those U-boat detachments. At what stage does it enter infamy, if, if you like? What, why do, does this name echo down the years? You have to fast forward a bit to um, very close to the end of the war, January of 1945. And at that point, the uh, Soviets are already making major inroads into, they've already entered German East Prussia, for example, they're making major inroads into occupied Poland. So Warsaw, for example, is liberated in the middle of January 1945. Uh, so the Soviets are very much on the way at this point. And the Germans um, set up an operation which is called Operation Hannibal. Uh, which is quite remarkable. And, I, and again, I think in uh, Western historiography, ma massively understudied. Um, it is an enormous evacuation operation from the German eastern provinces uh, via the Baltic predominantly. And they use almost any ship they can get their hands on um, 
cruise ships, freighters, you know, anything, anything they can find. Um, to evacuate wounded military personnel, um, to evacuate troops that are still capable that can be shifted to another theatre, but also some of the many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilian refugees who are being sort of pushed westwards on the bayonets of the Red Army at this point. And this is the operation that the Wilhelm Gustloff is called in to, to help with. It only makes one run. It's quite interesting that there's various ships used in Operation Hannibal, which are used much more extensively uh, than uh, Wilhelm Gustloff. There's one called the Deutschland, which was another cruise ship, slightly smaller than the, uh, than the Gustloff, which actually makes, I think, seven crossings of the Baltic Sea from, uh, from Gdansk, Gdynia, down to, across to Kiel. Uh, and, and, you know, t- takes out tens of thousands of, of refugees and, and wounded soldiers. So it's a massive operation. I think it's the largest sort of seaborne evacuation in history. But to Western historiography, it's, just, it's sort of irrelevant. It's not really talked about at all. So I try and, I try and bring that into the narrative um, you know, as much as I can. As I said, the Guslov only makes one crossing, and that one was incomplete. It sets off from Gdynia on the morning of the 30th of January 1945, which, of course, is the anniversary of Hitler coming to power in 1933. So it was a date that was uh, rather written in the stars, I think, for the, for the Wilhelm Gustloff. And that night, it was cruising westwards about sort of 20 miles off the North Polish coast, the Pomeranian coast, and was torpedoed by a Soviet submarine, uh, was hit three times uh, across her flanks and sank in 40 minutes, which of itself was a fairly common fate. A lot of ships, even operation, even ships used in Operation Hannibal uh, suffered a similar fate. What's peculiar, I think, about the, the Gustloff story is that when she was torpedoed and when she went down, she was carrying somewhere around 11,000 people. 11,000 uh, people? Hang on, yeah. how many has she been built for? She was built for uh, and designed for basically 2,000, 1,500 passengers, about 500 crew. So there must uh, have been people clinging on the railings. I mean, absolutely it was packed. It was absolutely packed to the gunnels, you know, standing room only. The vast majority of those on board were women and children. There are military personnel. There are wounded military as well. Uh, but the vast majority are civilians, and most of those are women and children. So you only have to imagine the sort of horrific scenes in the Baltic. The Baltic Sea is extremely cold in January 1945, as it is in any January. The ship lists very heavily to the port side. So as I said, in 40 minutes, it's basically, she's basically sunk. And you're left, I mean, many of those, many of the dead from the Wilhelm Gustloff never get out of the ship, which is another sort of horrific thought. It's quite an astonishing story. There are basically, by the time they sort of various vessels come in for a rescue operation to try and um, pick up survivors and all the rest of it, by the time they get to shore, they have 1,252 survivors. And it leaves us with an estimate, and it is only an estimate, because those that were letting all the refugees on the ship at Gdynia essentially stopped counting at about 8,000. So the estimate is there were about 11,000 on the ship when she sailed, uh, which gives us a total of about 9,500 dead, uh, which makes it the largest maritime disaster in history. Did the survivors leave harrowing accounts of, of the sinking what were those last 40 minutes like before before she sank uh, beneath the waves yeah absolutely i mean you only have to imagine Dan. they're absolutely horrific quite astonishing stories of of you know people having you know the last gasp of 
getting hold of their loved ones as they go over the rails. And there's quite a remarkable story that springs to mind is of a woman who was on the ship and it's listing heavily to port. And she hands her infant child to, to one of the crew who's standing there, who then promptly disappears. And she doesn't know where he's gone. She doesn't know if he's gone over the side or what. But she's obviously <laughs> very distressed. She then subsequently finds herself in a lifeboat, which was, was, was a very exceptional experience. As I said, most people didn't get that far. Subsequently onto a rescue ship, at which point a character appears out of the gloom and hands back the child. Remarkably, the two had managed to find each other at the end of the at the end of the sinking. So there are a couple of sort of stories like that, which are which are you know remarkable cases of sort of serendipity and chance. But for the vast majority, it is absolutely horrific. There's one particular aspect is that there were one of the decks was completely sealed in with uh, it was a promenade deck, but it was sealed in with glass panels. Uh, and a lot of those from from further down below decks, as I said, there was standing room only in the vessel, fought their way up through the stairwells, which of course became absolute death traps and people were trampled in the stairwells, uh, fought their way up to what they thought was a deck from which they could exit the ship. And they found themselves effectively in a glass coffin. Uh, and to try and sort of force your way back out of that particular promenade deck was almost impossible so people were just being crushed in in this as you know as i said a, 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 an eyewitness described it as a glass coffin um so the scenes on deck are, are absolutely horrific um and i think it's a story that's really been i wouldn't say covered up but it's certainly not it doesn't fit the narrative um of world war ii that we've conventionally have it's it had it's not uh, it's not something that the germans have tended to shout about roger was it a war crime was it a war crime? Technically, no. I'll tell you why. It was considered a legitimate target. It was carrying military personnel. Um, in their wisdom, the, um, the authorities in Gdynia had uh, lashed a couple of anti-aircraft guns to her, to her upper decks, um, hoping that that would deter attack. Um, and, of course, you know, at, she was travelling uh, periodically with lights, but often, often also with lights out through a war zone, carrying military personnel, and she's armed. So technically, no, it's not a war crime. Uh, this is one of the big arguments, I think, of, of, sort of, of, uh, sort of post-war historiography on this. But no, I don't think it is a war crime. I think that rather discounts it. It's one of those things that happens in war. It was torpedoed, if you like, in, in good faith by a Soviet submarine crew. They, of course, never expressed any, any remorse for what they did. They saw it as a normal... Um, you know, acts of warfare in, in 1945. It is cruel. The vast majority of those that are killed are women and children. Um, it's cruel, but war is cruel, unfortunately. Um, but I, I don't class it as a war crime. And obviously the Soviets never never apologised for it, as it were, but they, they no. didn't regard it as, as... They regarded it as a legitimate military target. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, the, actually, the story of the captain of the uh, submarine is very interesting as well. He was a chap called Marinesco, uh, who was himself a very flawed character uh, and uh, was sort of on his last chance as a, as a submarine commander in 1945. And then he ended up sinking the Wilhelm Gustloff, one of the sort of, you'd imagine, the greatest achievement of his career. He was subsequently sort of stripped and went put down to the ranks uh, for his previous misdemeanors and ended up in a, in a succession of uh, work camps in Siberia. It was almost his redemption, but not quite. I mean, his story is quite a remarkable one. And he's only given the, um, you know, the highest order, the Order of Lenin. He's only awarded that posthumously, actually by Gorbachev, 
1989. So his story is quite a quite an interesting one as well. Uh, but no, it's certainly not regarded by as I as far as I can tell, certainly not by the Russians or by the Soviets before them, uh, and certainly not by um, most sober observers. It's not regarded as a war crime. Roger, in Germany, is the, does this stand out in what was the darkest period in German history as a uniquely awful event, or is it just swept up with all the other terrible things that were going on across Central Europe? I think it tends to be swept up. Uh, certainly in the German mind, it tends to be swept up with, uh, as you say, all of the other awful events of that period, um, and perhaps rightly so. There's, you know, if you look at the the death toll there, it's it is quite horrific to our modern sort of peacetime eyes. But in terms of 1945, it's a drop in the ocean, really, no pun intended. But so I think I think you know partly correctly, it does get sort of subsumed into that general horror of the end of the war. Um, what I think is a bit more interesting, certainly in in the German view, is how this has been uh, initially almost you know deliberately forgotten. Um, so I think you used the phrase swept under the carpet. Um, it was a li- that's a little bit the case for the Wilhelm Gustloff because it, because it falls into the category of German victimhood. And German victimhood was something that for a long time post-war, actually until comparatively recently, but really until the last 20 years or so, was something that really couldn't be mentioned in polite society. So the Germans were the perpetrators. They were the ones that started the war. They were the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Uh, and to talk about German victimhood at the same time in World War Two was distasteful, uh, and Germans didn't do it. So stories like this just got just didn't get talked about, got largely forgotten. And it's very interesting the career of the chap who actually did most of the sort of hard work of researching the story of the Wilhelm Gustloff, a chap called Heinz Schön. Um, he was actually on the ship as a as a young man, as an eighteen year old, and survived. Um, and uh, it's essentially spent his entire life until he died in 2013 uh, researching, collecting eyewitness accounts, collecting information. And he pub- published a number of books uh, over that period, but was was very, very much out on the fringes, was very much forgotten, you know, considered to be, um, you know, someone who was uh, slightly beyond the pale and, you know, uh, beyond polite society. Um, so this is where sort of German historiography gets to. It doesn't talk about that stuff until about 20 years ago. And it's quite interesting. There is a shift that the uh, the Guslov story is 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 front center in Gunter Grass's novel um, *Crab Walk*, which I think, from memory, came out in two thousand and two. Uh, and that was one of those moments where there's a there's a general sort of almost tectonic shift uh, in German historiography and Ger- in Germany's treatment of its own history. And it suddenly becomes possible for German society to start talking about its own victims admittedly within certain parameters and in certain circumstances, but it at least becomes possible. And Schoen, at the very end of his career and at the end of his life, he has this sort of swan song of being someone who is, um, who is uh, you know, considered interesting and is, uh, is invited to the conferences and, and comes back in from the cold, as it were. So there's a very interesting sort of sub-narrative here of how Germany treats its own history and how it has done post-war. Roger, as always, it's great to have you on History Hit. Thank you so much. The book is available as an ebook. Is it? Tell us quickly how you get That's it. That's right. It is. It's a. It's a, an, a Kindle single, so it's an ebook available via Amazon. The title is "Ship of Fate." And uh, thank you for reminding us all about the worst maritime disaster of all time that uh, probably most of us had never heard of. Thanks very much. 
hope you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and uh, i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you <laughs>